Good morning. We are in um, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 8 through 10 today. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Um, it's a very common passage, and one could wonder what in the world could be said that has not already been said about this text. Um, but uh, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. This is the Word of the Lord. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray now that your spirit would use your word to um, convict our minds, to convict our hearts, to strengthen our wills. We know that it is your will that we be conformed to the image of your son, that we think, act, and behave um, in a way that's Christ-like, and that we act and think less like ourselves. Father, I pray now that this text would have that purpose in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. The title is uh, Grace and Faith and Works, Oh My, which, uh, uh, of course, it's, it's very obvious. It's a take on of um, the, uh, the Wizard of Oz, where uh, she's on the, Dorothy is on the Yellow Brick Road, and uh, she's confronted with the fact that she, there's lions and tigers and bears, oh my. It's obvious, right, the parallel between the two? Uh, well, uh, the, the, the two here, we have, uh, the, the, the key point here is the and. How is the and functioning between lions and tigers and bears? Uh, usually this type of conjunction is uh, giving a, uh, showing a relationship. It's a coordinating conjunction which uh, shows this elements are equal in order or rank. And, uh, and, and maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. Maybe for Dorothy, the lions and the tigers and the bears are all equal. And uh, the result is, oh, oh my, I, I'm going to come against these lions and tigers and bears. But and can have another function other than correlating equal uh, order or, or rank. And, and that is that it can give sequence. As in, she's first going to find a lion and then she's going to find a, a tiger and then she's going to find a bear. It, it, it can show a, a sequence, a logical sequence of events. For example, I was born uh, in Florida, and I lived in Venezuela, and I lived in Spain, and now I live in Houston. Those, uh, those are not equal in, in duration, right? Uh, I, I lived 18 years in Venezuela, but my mom would say, praise the Lord, I was not 18 years being born, right? You know, uh, she would, would have hated that. Uh, so you can have uh, a connection of thoughts which are not equal in rank, but can show a logical sequence of what is supposed to happen. Now, we have in this text 
three terms that cause a lot of problem. It's grace and faith and works. And the question is, are they equal? Are they the same? Uh, or, or is there a logical sequence to them? Uh, should they be together? Or maybe it should just be grace and faith and we should leave off works. Or maybe, as some would say, we, we are to do works that leads to grace and faith. Uh, how, what's the correlation between these? Now, what we've been seeing so far in chapter 2 is that Paul describes God in a, in a way that we, we really don't grab a hold of too much, and that is that God is rich in mercy because of His great love. God is rich in mercy because of His great love, and He wants to show His riches of His grace and kindness towards us. He, he wants to show this. He wants to show His kindness. We don't tend to think of God in those ways. Uh, you know, we tend to think of, of God as a very stern and angry person, somebody who's stern and angry all the time. In fact, we'll warn our kids, you better behave because God's watching you, right? And it's like, oh my word, like you must behave. Sit still in church. Oh, you moved, you know, lightning down. We, we tend to have this characteristic that God is just ready to kill and destroy. Now, the fact that God is kind and merciful does not make null the fact that we are to fear the Lord. We're, we're not. We're, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. God is, is all-powerful, and he knows the intentions of our heart. So even though we could be sitting very still, we could be in our intentions off skiing in Colorado somewhere, right? I mean, our, our, our brain could be daydreaming of somewhere else, but there we are, nodding at the right time. Hmm, amen, that's great, fantastic. But in our heart, we're like way off somewhere else. Now, God says, Paul says through, uh, Paul says through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God is rich in mercy, and he is wanting to show his kindness towards us. Now, what we're going to be looking at today is that uh, we were graciously saved through faith for sovereignly predetermined good works. So go do them. We have been graciously saved through faith for sovereignly predetermined works, good works. So go do them. And the first point that I'd like to see from this text is that God, uh, do good works because you were graciously saved. We see that in verse 8. Uh, it starts off, for, which uh, gives a um, uh, kind of a, um, a cause. And this cause, we're going to be introduced to grace and faith, and then later on we're going to be seeing uh, works. What is absent from our three verses? Well, we got grace, and we got faith, and we got works. But there's a big theological term that is missing from our text, and that's the word justify. And it's interesting that Paul decides not to use this word justify in this text. It seems like the place to put this word would be here, but it, it's left out. Now, as we think about this and we think about these verses, uh, we have to realize that uh, we are looking at it post-Reformation, post-Counter-Reformation. And uh, we, we have to realize that and we have to also realize the fact that 
Theology is great, and I really appreciate what, we, what came out of the Reformation, what came out of the Counter-Reformation. It brought a lot of clarity to salvation, to, to the scriptures, and so forth. But we have to realize that theology is not inspired. Theology is not inspired. The, God's Word is inspired. But theology, uh, theology is not. So uh, we have to very appreciatively put our theology aside to find what the author is intending to communicate. I, I, I know that seems just rather drastic to say, uh, even if I added the appreciatively. But we have to appreciatively put our theology aside because we need to see what God's Word says to inform our theology. So what we're going to do is, we're going to, as we look at this and look at this causal that is there for which gives a cause or sense because of uh, for by grace, which uh, shows God's favor, his kindness. It's uh, showing a partiality. When we think about this grace and showing partiality, all of a sudden questions start coming to mind, ideas, things that we've heard. And in this, of this grace, we see that it's something objective, something that God is doing. God is showing grace. We see that from verse 5, that God is saving through grace. But one has to ask the question, does one have to receive the grace that God gives? In other words, can one resist the grace that God gives? Or is it irresistible? Can, can we you know, we have to accept it. Now, there's been people that have come down on different sides of this. Some say, yes, of course you can resist. If somebody gives me a present, I can either say thank you very much and open it and accept it, or I can say, no, I don't even want to touch it. So some people say, yes, because it's a favor, it's a kindness, it's a bestowment of kindness towards somebody else. If God has bestowed this kindness, a person can say, no, I do not want it, and they can reject it. There's been another group of people, and uh, they say, no, no. Uh, God's grace cannot be resisted. Uh, we saw from verses 3 to uh, verse 14 in chapter 1 that God has, has chosen in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. He has predestined us for adopted sons through Jesus Christ, uh, according to his kind intention, to the praise of his glory. He's, he's sealed. That outworking of grace, then, is not something a person can just decide. They're not going to accept. This is God working out his plan of salvation, a plan that he has done before the foundation of the world. He's already planned this out. In no way, shape, or form can a person resist God's grace. There's uh, another group. They claim to be uh, different from the first two groups. They say, no, God's grace cannot be resisted unless you resist it. I'm like, what? <laughs> that sounds like a no. Well, they, they see it this way, and they, this is the illustration that goes with it. Imagine you're very, very, very sick, and um, you, you pass out, and lo and behold, you kind of wake up, and you're on your way to the hospital in the ambulance. Now, if you do nothing at all, what will happen? 
well, you'll get to the, you'll get to the hospital and, and the doctor will see you. So if you do nothing at all, you'll end up at the hospital. But what, what if you wake up in the ambulance as it's going along and you say, oh my word, it's about to take me to the hospital. I don't want to go there. And you say, stop, stop the ambulance. Well, according to this idea, the person can then get out of that ambulance and not go to the hospital. And so they, they kind of use that with, uh, with grace, that if a person does nothing at all, God's grace will move that person towards salvation, unless, of course, they decide to harden their heart and say, no, I, I don't want to accept it. Now, those are our three positions. The people would hold that those are three distinct positions. As you're looking at this text, though, those are theological questions that Paul has no desire to answer at all in this text. He, he, he does not care to do that. We might be asking this question because we're wanting to know, does a person have to accept this grace or not? But Paul does not seem to care to try to answer that question. Rather, he makes a statement that it's by grace you have been saved. The, the saved is a uh, combination of two verbs, a verb and a participle. Uh, the one verb is a, is a present indicative that you are, and the second verb is having been saved, which is a perfect passive participle, which has this idea of something that has happened in the past but continues to have an effect in the present. And it's a passive, which means that you're not saving yourself, but you are being saved. And, of course, the, the participle aspect is a progressive aspect to it. Our, our saving is not just a thing that happened in the past, but it's a, a continual thing that keeps on having an effect in the person's life. And it's not that they're saving themselves, like as if they fell into a water and they're swimming to the edge. But it's that they are being rescued, they are being saved. Now, saved from what? Well, we've already seen. Verse 1 says that we were dead in our trespasses of sin. A person living in that deadness is separated from God. And if they die in that situation, they'll continually live separate, far away from God, in eternal punishment. So we are saved uh, by grace. And then our next word here says, uh, through Faith, through faith. I, uh, I had a theology professor that um, loved to point out the fact that our, um, our preposition here is, is dia. It's a Greek word, dia. And he said, but it's dia with the genitive. And so um, he, he had this kind of long piece of tissue that, that was right here. And so he would go through, and he would shake his head like that, and then he would stop. And that thing would keep on moving for the next, like, 30 seconds. You go, through. And um, the, the, the through, the deal with the genitive is, is through, me meaning it's the conduit. It, it's the, the method that you have to go through. That if you're going to get from point A to point B, it's going to be through this. Uh, through faith. This has uh, this idea of, of trusting, of putting your faith in something of putting a confidence, uh, just like the way you are putting your faith and confidence in, in the chair. You're sitting there very comfortably. Uh, here, this is, uh, they are trusting, they have put their faith in, through. Now this 
all of a sudden now brings up a whole bunch of questions just like grace did. Grace had its objective aspect to it. Uh, faith has a subjective aspect to this salvation. Uh, God's grace is bestowed, but that doesn't mean everybody is saved. God's grace is bestowed, but not everybody is going in heaven. You could read over in Revelation chapter 20 that there's the great white throne judgment and there are those who are dead and they're cast into the lake of fire. So this is this subjective aspect of salvation. Now, when we see this, we have to ask the question, whose faith are we talking about here? Whose faith? The grace, we said, is God's grace, and we related that to verse 5. Uh, for by grace are you saved, and it's been in the, in the context, it's God is a subject, and he's doing the verbs, and he's doing this to us who are dead in our transgressions. And so contextually, it makes sense to say, for by grace, this grace is correlated to the subject of God bestowing this grace. But whose faith is mentioned here in verse 8? Uh, whose faith is it? There's been a couple of people that have said, well, this is, this is God's faith. This is God's faith. And uh, they declare that in two different ways. Uh, in one sense, they say, well, it's God who is faithful to save. He's faithful to save. He bestows grace, and then he is faithful to see that salvation happen. So it's God who is bestowing the faith. Uh, he is faithfully saving some. And some of you have never heard that, and so now you're kind of like, whoa, I don't know about that. I don't know about God being the, uh, the it's God's faith. Some say, well, it's not God's faith like that, but rather it's God that gives faith to save people. God gives faith to save people. So in, in both instances, it's God's faith. Either it's God having faith or being faithful to save, or it's God bestowing a gift of faith to the person to believe. Now, others would say, no, it, it's, not the, it, it's not God's faith that's talking about here. Rather, it's the person's faith in God. And they would articulate that by looking at chapter 1, verse 15. It says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Contextually, this faith belongs to the people, and it's placed in God, or in this case, Jesus Christ. Uh, it holds better that this is a faith of the person placed in God. The person is having faith in God. Now, why faith? Why, why faith? There's angels that surround God and going around God and say, holy, 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 all day long. Why not holiness? Why not you're saved by grace through holiness? I mean, that seems appropriate. God is a holy God. Why not holiness? See, faith is that thing where you put your trust in God and it's totally devoid of anything that you do. It has everything to do with saying, I can't, and I'm going to put all my trust in God. Now, the world around us is, is, is a mess. There's all types of stuff going on. 
There's famines, there's wars, there's kids that get sick and they die, there's marriages that break up. There, it's a mess. It's a mess around us. And faith says, even though everything is a mess, I'm going to trust that God is a good God and that he is going to save me. There's not a thing I can add. The only thing that I can do is trust that God will save me. Now, that is why it's faith, because it's totally devoid of us doing anything. It's totally accepting and relying on God to be a trustworthy and benevolent God. And it goes on to say, uh, for by grace have you been saved through faith and not of yourselves. This is just in case you haven't gotten it. That this is not something you do. This is something dependent on God. It is a gift of God. Now, we have a little bit of a debate here and, and a situation that we have to kind of look at. It says, uh, uh, for by grace have you been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Um, what, what is the that? What, it's a demonstrative pronoun. What is the that referring to? Well, what is not of yourselves? Uh, there have been a couple different people that have looked at different things, and, and they've, some said, well, it probably corresponds to faith because faith is the closest um, antecedent to the demonstrative pronoun. The, the problem with that is that you have a neuter demonstrative pronoun, and faith is a feminine. It's a feminine noun. And, and demonstrative neuter pronouns do not correlate to feminine uh, nouns. They don't. It, it would be like saying, uh, she went to the supermarket, and he bought apples. You're like, well, who's the he? Well, it's the she. Like, no, the she is not the he. That, that just doesn't make any sense at all. That, that, that doesn't make... That you wouldn't say that unless you're talking about two different people. So to have the that correspond to faith, it doesn't correspond at all. It does an injustice to the language. You have to force it. And, and you would have, the only example would be right here out of the New Testament. I would not base my faith on one example. I just wouldn't. Others have said, well, it's not faith. It's grace. Grace is the antecedent. The problem there is that grace is also a feminine. So you end up having the same problem where you have a neuter corresponding to a feminine. That just doesn't make any sense. Some have said, well, it, it's salvation. Salvation is. Well, that saving that you see in verse 8, uh, having been saved, is a masculine participle. So again, you end up having the trouble again. So what in the world could that, that be referring to? Well, you can have a neuter demonstrative pronoun referring back to a concept. For example, the, in verse 15, you have that uh, referring back to verses 3 through 14, the concept that is being presented there. So here you have a presentation of the that, which is being from 4 to verse 8. That, what God has done, this, that God has done, is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. What? This whole process that he is taking these nasty, wretched people and giving them life and, and, and raising them up and seating them at the right hand of, uh, 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 right there with Christ. That is a gift of God. 
Now, verse 9, it says, uh, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Uh, not only do we do works because we are graciously saved, but we also do works humbly because God deserves the glory. We do works because humbly because God deserves the glory. As we see in this verse, this that we have received is not a result of our working out. And the purpose, it has a purpose clause, so that no one may boast. No one can say, I did it. I got here. We, we did it together. No, there's no doing together. There's God doing the work to save people. Now, you might say, well, isn't that kind of prideful on God's part? Isn't that kind of, you know, mean to just take all the credit for doing the work? I mean, don't when we work together, like on a class project, or when we work to do some, I mean, there's always the one people that kind of hang out by the donut table, and then there's other people doing the work, and then at the end we say, we, we did it together. I mean, don't we do that? I mean, isn't that the kind thing to do? One person's their shirt is drenched in sweat, and another person is just all cool as a cucumber, and, and what, what do we say? We did it, right? I mean, that's just the nice thing to do. What, why doesn't God say, we did it? Because we did not do it. God did it all. He's the one that has done the work. It would be dishonest on his part to say, we've done it together. It would be a lie because God is the one who has done He did this work. No one can boast because God has done this work. Our good work should be done with humility. A person saved should be a humble person. Someone who realizes that they are who they are because of God's grace. As you grow in your walk with the Lord, it, it should be rather evident that as you get to see God's holiness, you see just how unholy you are. And it should bring you to a deeper and deeper humility to know that God loved you and he has worked this out in you. It shouldn't take anybody to boasting. Now, as we see this, we should do good works because you were graciously saved. You do good works humbly because God deserves the glory. Verse 10 now is where we get into this aspect of works. So do good works because God made them for you. And we see that in verse 10. It says, for we are his workmanship. Uh, we are his creation. It, it gives a certain echo back to Genesis, when God sovereignly and providentially acted to create. Now, this sovereign providential act of creation is being done for we are his workmanship. And, it's, and the next word is created. We're, we're created. It's a very specific word that's only used of divinity in creation. For example, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, and it goes on and talking about who he is. The creation of the world is the same word here. It's something that God divinely did, something that he acted out. Now, as, as it's saying, we are his workmanship. We are his uh, creation. He is working in us, and he is creating us, 
and it's happening in Christ. This work of creating, of making a new creation, it's happening within the sphere of Christ. As in outside of Christ, there is no creating, there is no working new. It's in Christ. As you are in Christ, you're being made a new creature. And, and Paul goes on to, uh, to say that the reason, the purpose for good works, it has a purpose clause there. The reason we are saved by grace through faith is for good works. Now, in case you are tempted to reduce down good works to a, an afterthought, something not very important, something optional, like you have to have grace and you have to have faith, but works is like, mm, you can take it or leave it. He goes on to say, which God prepared beforehand. There's only two places in the New Testament where that word is used. And here's one of them. Beforehand. They were prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. God prepared, sovereignly prepared, good works so that we could walk in those. Now, th this is kind of exciting to think about. Uh, we're to do good works because you were graciously saved. We do good works uh, humbly because God deserves the glory, but do good works because God made you for them. God has made us to walk in these good works. There's a, a contrast that's presented between the good works that are prepared beforehand in, in verse 10, and then over in verse 2, well, if we start in verse 1, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you formerly walked. And how did you walk? Well, it was according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now working in the sons of disobedience. You lived in the lust of your flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. A contrast is presented. On one side, you're walking, and you're walking in the most natural way, which is according to the prince of this air, which is according to the desires that your flesh has, which is a, a, according to what your mind thinks. It's the most natural way to live, to walk in that. On the flip side, on the other side of the contrast, is God is working in Christ, in us, in Christ, for works that he created beforehand so that we could walk in those. Predetermined works. Good works. Obviously, those good works, we cannot be the standard of those good works because <laughs> our flesh desires, our, our mind desires, yeah, we can't be the standard. God is the standard of those good works. Those have been pre-made for us to be walking in them, continually walking in them, being involved in them. If I were to make an illustration of this, I remember living in Spain when our kids were really young. And in Spain, you walk everywhere. I mean, everywhere you walk. 
And uh, in the afternoons, you uh, go and you get, uh, some people get bags of chips, and they walk up and down the sidewalks talking with the, their friends and so forth, and you just walk everywhere. And, and if, if the sidewalk was 20 feet wide, for some reason, all three of the kids would do this. They, they would go to the part that's closest to the road. Why are you doing that? There's all this sidewalk way over there. Go, go over that side. Go, go towards the building, not towards the road. And then we'd come to the, the, the crosswalk. And, and do you know what they would do? They, they, would, they would barge forward, like a big old piece of metal rolling down the road, and, and they're just going to walk out there. I'm like, why? Why, why would you do that? I mean, and they would be so strong-willed about wanting to cross when they wanted to cross. I don't know where they would get that. I'm so mild-tempered and, and so easy, and they would just be so determined and headstrong about doing that. I don't know where they get that from. But um, I, I remember this one time where <clears throat> we, we parked the car, and uh, we, we parked the car southeast of the Plaza Mayor in, in Salamanca. And uh, so we, we kind of went west up this uh, road, and um, it was a road that's just for pedestrians, and then we, and then we started going north. And uh, we walking and looking at all the stores and seeing things and, and just enjoying our time. And then we get to the, the plaza, and uh, we had some sitting around, looking, looking at the architecture, talking, and so forth. And then we keep on wandering, and, and we go out. There's several exits out of the plaza, and we went out the one that's to the uh, northwest. And so we keep on walking up and so forth. And then uh, one of our kids uh, started getting tired, tired. And um, uh, they, uh, they needed a, a nap and uh, needed something to eat. Uh, needed to rest, and um, the way to find rest was by going southeast to the car. That, that's, that's the only way we could do it. But this child was just determined to continue going northwest, opposite direction of where there was relief. There was the car where we could sit down, have the air conditioning on, we could go home and have food and rest and hang out. But this child was just determined to go in the opposite direction. Hey, we could try to argue. We could try to debate. We could try to show. But they just determined. M many Christians live like that. Many Christians live with anxiety and fear and five different ulcers because they're trying to do things their way. And God is inviting over here and he's saying, look, uh, my, my yoke is light. I, I've got these works there beforehand. I, I've already prepared for you to walk in this. Come, come and walk in this. You're like, no, I, I just need a couple more hours and I'll, I'll be able to pay this off and I'll be able to do this and I'll be able to accomplish this uh, and then I'll have rest. And God's saying, no, it's absurd. You'll, you'll never find rest over there. And you keep on pushing forward. Maybe if I take on a second job, then I'll get to my goals and, and then I'll be able to rest. And God's saying, I've got, I've got it here, come. I, I 
prepared them for you so that you could be walking in them. You could live in them. There's peace here. There's satisfaction. There's rest. How absurd it would it be to continue letting that child go northwest. They would have never gotten to the car. I'm sure there's a smart aleck here that would say, they'll eventually get there if they go around the world. They wouldn't. They'd never make it. Not a single, it wouldn't be, not even an adult would be able to make it. There, there is no hope unless you go back to where God is. God has prepared good works. He has given grace. You believe that God is saving. And the purpose of that grace being bestowed is for good works. There's no way around it. You're to live with it. Now, you might start thinking of hypothetical situations. What if the person accepts Christ and then dies? They never did a good work. If you're alive today, you have good works to do. They've been prepared for you. He doesn't go into hypothetical situations. He goes into, if you are here reading this text, God has good works for you. And it might seem absurd. Now, you think about that, and the good works, it's going to be different for every person here. I'd probably say that for the majority, your good works are going to be lived out in serving the Lord in this church, uh, working in your community, being a Christian influence. But for some others, the good works might be involved in going halfway around the world to some jungle and serving God. And you say, I'm not going to be happy there. If God has prepared that for you, you will. I want to find satisfaction. I want to find stuff. I want to pursue my dreams. God has prepared works for you. And the only place to find satisfaction is being in those works, living those out, obeying him. Now, I've been putting a big emphasis on doing. And I don't want you to miss what I'm saying. The only way that you're going to be able to do any of this is by being by being saved. Maybe you're here and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior. Maybe you have a whole list of good works that you've done, but this aspect of receiving grace to save you through faith, you you haven't ever accepted that. You've tried to work, you've tried to memorize, you've tried to learn, but you have never put your faith in what Jesus Christ has done to save you. Today can be that day of salvation. Today, you can put your faith in Jesus Christ, in His work as being finished. It saves you and be saved through faith. For other of us here, God has prepared, sovereignly prepared, good works for us, for us to be walking in them. Not to be walking according to our flesh, not to be walking according to our desires, but to be living out in these good works. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we consider our own lives and where we're living, I pray that you would show us what we need to repent of. Father, if there's someone here who's not saved, that today could be the day of salvation. Father, I pray that for those who are living, 
in these good works that you would encourage their hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.